Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Why did we create the Organic Oasis Guidebook? And why are we creating the Organic Oasis Masterclass with the amazing Patty Armbruster? When you get membership to her fan club and a weekly Q&A, not a weekly, a monthly Q&A with her. So it's because we want to help you live in the most earth-friendly, healthiest environment you can. So it's good for you. It's good for Mother Earth. Whether you grow vegetables or not, we will help you. You know, gardening can be a lot of work, but it can also, you can live in a beautiful landscape and that will help your neighborhood or local farmer or gardener, you know, their farm produce more food because you're inviting bees into your neighborhood with a pollinator border that's so pretty and you can pick bouquets of flowers or you can just enjoy them and just it's a beautiful place by your home whether you want to grow food or vegetables that's why we call it the organic oasis and we've been build, working on building our organic oasis for well mike and i've been married 27 years so we have been working on it very 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 slowly so we know how it goes and we've struggled with water we've and then i've interviewed over 300 people on the organic gardener podcast so I just know that um, I have gone from brown thumb to green thumb. So, you know, whatever your idea of an organic oasis is, whether you want a bee sanctuary or um, an earth-friendly landscape or you want to grow more vegetables, um, I've got the experts, Mike and Patty and all the guests that I've talked to to help you succeed and be able to eat healthy food and feed your kids healthy food and you know, um, just have access, you know, uh, fruits are some of the coolest things to grow. A raspberry patch keeps producing. You can get luscious blueberries and those are the kind of things that maybe need a little watering, a little bit. They're very low maintenance. One of my amazing guests was Tara who wrote the book on growing fruit trees in the Pacific Northwest. And she talks about it because she wanted low maintenance because she was gardening at her mom's house. So all sorts of great tips for you on how to create your own earth-friendly organic oasis. Let's get growing. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast. Today, I am just, I'm really excited because I know listeners are going to enjoy this interview. Um, it's actually one of the very few interviews I've ever redone because we're just going to have fun today. And I have this great guest and we're just... Um, I know you're going to love to hear her story and about the program where she works. It's just been, um, she's had an amazing life, even though she's one of those rock star millennials. So she's still pretty young. Um, but so far she's done a lot of things. I know I wasn't quite as courageous when I was her age and just, I think you'll be inspired too. So, uh, I'll be quiet now and I'm going to introduce my guest, Jess Pierce. Um, welcome to the show today, Jess. Thank you, Jackie. I'm I'm so happy to be here. Okay. So tell listeners a little bit about your own personal story. Like, tell us so we can get to know you a little better. Um, all right, Jackie. Well, um, I am currently the mini farm manager at the Jevons Center for Research and Education in Willits, California. But I'm originally an East Coaster. I'm from Baltimore County, Maryland. Um, I grew up there with a pretty classic 
suburban upbringing. I have no memorable um, experiences with farming or gardening as a child. And yeah, and I, I grew up and I, I went to college because that's what I was supposed to do and put in my four years and got out of college and I realized I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to make a difference, but I had no idea how. And so I was sitting there thinking and realized that, well, if I don't know what I want, I should just go out and serve other people. Maybe if I go serve them, then I'll figure out what the right thing for me is. So I was fortunate to come across um, AmeriCorps programs, and I found one working with adults with disabilities. So I moved out to Tucson, Arizona, and I started this job, and I was going to help people. So I, I did that job for a year, and I thought, well, this is really cool. I'll, I help people, but, but what about the environment? It's really great to help people, but if they don't have anywhere to live, then what is helping them going to do? Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get another AmeriCorps job, and I'm going to help the environment. So I got a job in Oregon working for a trail conservation crew. Nice. And I, I pretty much um, lived in the woods for a whole year and just maintained these hiking trails. And I, you know, I felt like I helped the environment and I did a really noble thing for the, the planet. And I was like, well, this is cool, but, but how do I bring these together? How do I help people and help the environment? And so then I, I had the fortunate opportunity to, to move to Hawaii. And a friend was, was like, let's go move to Hawaii and we'll work on farms there. And we'll, and we'll figure something out. <laughs> Let's just move to Hawaii and we'll figure something out. And then what happens? Yeah, right? <laughs> I love those friends. Um, those are the best kind of friends, right? Yeah. So, um, so we moved to Hawaii and I started working on a farm out there. And it really probably only took me about a week of working on a farm to be like, this is it. I found it. I, I was in love, Jackie. Like I was just like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and, you know, it really became clear to me that this was the way to mix serving people by growing them nutritious food and serving the earth by practicing ecological farming practices. And, and you could tend the soil and care for the earth and, and give back while receiving nutritious, healthy food that for myself and that I could share with the community there. Awesome. So, that is just a beautiful story. You're kind of painting it over and making it sound a lot easier than I'm sure it really was, no matter how rewarding. <laughs> I know uh, my husband and I met planting trees for the Forest Service, but that certainly wasn't for a year. Well, a whole year of camping and living and working on a trail crew. Yeah. No, it was a really, it was tough work and, yeah. and, you know, but it was a cool experience for me because it really showed me how rewarding hard work really is. You know, I had never had an experience in my life that really 
pushed me and challenged me physically and mentally and emotionally in that way. And, and going through that process and really coming out the other end and being like, Oh, I'm, I'm still alive. And, <laughs> and I survived and it really made me see like how much, how much I'm capable of and really how capable all humans are, like how much potential we all have. And it's just that often we're never pushed to, to our limits. Nice. And I love the whole service piece and how you were, you know, thinking about, you know, what can I do to help? Other, you know, I don't know what I want to do. So why don't I just go help some others for a while? And I, figure, I mean, that's just incredible. What a great attitude and what a great idea. And it's interesting because when I, um, when I came to plant trees, I remember asking this friend of mine who was, um, you have the university I went to has this big wilderness and civilization program and the students get to go do all these, uh, things outdoors. And they're, you know, usually pretty athletic, pretty, you know, active people. And I really wasn't, I mean, you know, I was in college, I rode my bike a lot, but I wasn't, you know, the most sports oriented. And so I was like, well, what could I do to train? And he was like, Jackie, you're probably in good enough shape just being you. The biggest thing is attitude. He's like, it's all about attitude. And I think you're like, you know, really being exemplifying that a little bit to the max. <laughs> and no, just, and Jackie, uh, that's, that's totally the best advice. It really is about attitude. I mean, it, it's so at the core of all of it. And as soon as we can break free of the little boxes we put ourselves in and, and have this positive, proactive attitude, we can accomplish anything. Nice. All right. Well, we're already starting off with you dropping tons of golden seeds. And I do tell listeners a lot that, you know, if you don't know what you want to do when you go to college, you know, a lot of times you'll meet somebody who will be like, oh, yeah, my cousin's best friend, you know, knows somebody like me coming to plant trees was like friends that I met in college. They weren't even in my classes, but they were like, you know, my roommate's friend was like, you should go, you should go plant trees. It'll be a good thing for you to do. And this other friend of mine was like, you should go work for this crew up in Eureka. That's where they're the best crew. And if you're going to go plant trees, you need to go work for those guys. And then, you know, two weeks after I was here, I met my husband on the hillside. And we just fell in love from there. And so, you know, you just never know where, but I really think, you know, probably, um, you know, it's always good to step outside your comfort zone and, you know, make those connections and, and you'll end up in the right place because the right people will say, oh, you should go do this. And, yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. What a great way to, to meet, to meet your love. That's beautiful, Jackie. Thanks. Yeah. It's worked out pretty good so far. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're about to celebrate 23 years, so, um, yeah, pretty crazy, and, like, you know, I was, like, this little girl in New York, always dreaming about moving to Montana, but even, like, moving to Missoula, like, when I graduated high school, there was no way I was ready to come to Montana, and even when I moved when I was 21, it was still seemed like a big deal to go across the country and get a car and drive, and it just seemed so far away, and so for you to go you know, from Maryland. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go, you know, take this AmeriCorps job in, did you say Arizona? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's still a long ways away. You're going and taking this job you're not sure about. And then, and, um, you know, AmeriCorps, if listeners don't know, is kind of like the domestic version of the Peace Corps. Instead of going to another country, come work in uh, communities around here. And now there's a big branch of that called the food core. I've met quite a few food core people since I started my podcast. So people that specifically work on, you know, helping sustainable food, um, like, uh, build food, 
you know, provide food for people who, um, healthy, nutritious food for local people. Anyway. Um, and then you go, and then you go from Arizona to Oregon and, you know, get a job on a trail crew and then to Hawaii. And now you're in California, right? Yeah. See, now, and I thought um, for some reason your family was in California, but they're in Maryland. Is that where you grew up? Yep. They're still, yeah, they're still in Maryland. I, I grew up in the, in Baltimore County. It's like right outside of Baltimore city. I grew up right near the city line. Okay. So you said that you didn't really have any gardening experience when you were a kid. Do you want to tell us about your very first gardening experience then? Like, you know, how old were you? Who were you with? What did you remember? What did you grow? Really? I mean, my, I would say my first experience was in, on this farm in Hawaii. I mean, I'm sure that I was in their garden or went to a farm before then, but it was no, it didn't touch me. It wasn't a memorable experience for me. And it really wasn't until I got out to Hawaii that I really understood what it was all about. And then, um, and it was really cool to have my first farming experience in Hawaii because there was, there was just such a stronger sense of the issue of food insecurity I think just because they're islands, there seems to be a greater awareness of the fragility of the food system and how if the boat stopped coming, how would they have their food? They only had 10 days worth of food on the island at any given time. So there just seemed to be a really strong conversation around the importance of creating stronger food systems on the islands and being able to sustain themselves. So if the day came where the boat stopped coming, they would still have enough food to eat. And so I think I was felt I feel very lucky to have had that early exposure to that mentality because it's really true of any city or anywhere in the world. I mean, most of the food is is brought in, and what if that system stopped? And you know, as as many listeners probably know, our conventional food system is is pretty fragile. You know, it's based on these fossil fuel imports and and a lot of um, chemicals and, and things that are not healthy for our planet or for our bodies and and it really could fall apart and so so what do we want to do to to make it stronger and more sustainable and you know I, I was really asking myself these questions when I was in Hawaii I was like well, what what do you do how do you grow enough food and there's not a lot of farmland on these islands. Like, how, how do we do this? And then <laughs> I met this amazing couple um, who were farming on Kauai. And they had this tiny, tiny growing area. But it was gorgeous. And it was packed full of plants. And they were growing. They were tr- attempting to grow their whole diet. And they were growing crops for soil fertility and they were growing crops for market to make an income and they were breeding seed varieties or plant varieties, breeding seeds so they could have crops that would be better adapted to growing in their tropical environment. And they were just amazing. And I I was like, how are you doing this? How can I do this? This is, this is just amazing. And they were like, well, have you ever heard of John Jevons? And I hadn't. And so they gave me the book, How to Grow More Vegetables. 
and fruits, nuts, berries, grains, and other crops than you ever thought possible on less land than you can imagine by John Jevons. And I opened the book and I, and it's all there. It's this simple, accessible method to growing food in a really small space. And, and it just clicked for me. I was like, this is, this is how we do it. This is how anybody anywhere could grow food and, and work together to create a more resilient food system, more sustainable communities. And man, it was like such a relief for me. I was like, this can be done. It is possible. And I just really felt so empowered that I could go out in any yard, any space and grow food. Awesome. Okay, before we move on to where you're at now, I just quickly, because we didn't mention it, but were you working for the woofer, like that, um, was it Worldwide Opportunities for Organic Farmers? Were you doing that kind of program in Hawaii? Yes, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I was, the I was just a volunteer. That, the farm that you were volunteering on is a different farm than these people, and you just happened to find them because you were walking by their yard, or that was the one of the, the place that you were sent? Or, no, actually, I we've, we met them through the farmers that we were working for. They were friends, and so we act, I never actually worked on their farm full-time, right. but um, on my day off from the farm I was working at, I would go and work at their farm for the oh day because it was just amazing absolutely amazing and you know it's only through an odd chain of events that I'm still not there (laughs) still not working um on their farm in Hawaii but I'm grateful for the the life events that brought me to where I am today okay so let's just transition right into that where are you today tell listeners about how I reached out to you or anyway how we found each other just tell them where you are so I'm currently the mini farm manager at the Javin Center for Research and Education, where we teach the teach and practice the grow biointensive method of sustainable mini farming. This method attempts to grow a complete diet on the smallest area possible while maintaining soil fertility and conserving resources. So it was originally um, started by John Jevons in 1972 down in Palo Alto, California. And so these techniques that we use here um, have been practiced for over 40 years and it's just a beautiful, simple method of agriculture that is truly accessible to anyone anywhere um, in the world. Yeah, and so the the place I found you is because the Bountiful Gardens catalog is where we get a lot of our seeds, and and then I was reading the back of the catalog, and that's where it talks all about the program, and people can come there and do internships, right, or they can take workshop classes and then they can learn but today we're going to talk about the program and the method itself right or well yeah so originally um 
The Devon Center is a part of the nonprofit Ecology Action, and Bountiful Garden Seed Company is also under the Ecology Action nonprofit umbrella. And so we, while we function on a day-to-day basis as separate organizations, we're very connected to one another, and we grow some seed for them, and we receive some seed from them as well, and we uh, will table with them at events and things like that. So they're definitely, they're also located right here in Willits, California, so we partner with them on a lot of things. And they, you know, the seed company was started as a part of Ecology Action because when John was starting this back in the 70s, he had a trouble accessing high-quality, open-pollinated seeds. So he was like, well, if I can't buy them, let's grow them. Let's, let's have them here and provide them to people. And so it just kind of was an idea that was born out of necessity and now has really flourished into this amazing seed company that really offers very great, high-quality seed and um, really exciting special varieties mm-hmm. um and we've grown a lot of those seeds and use them here so i can definitely testify to that because um, we grow my husband's grown a lot of food so but so but you're going to talk about the biointensive method right which like one of the biggest things that surprised me was well i'll let you talk about it and because um, I don't want to interrupt how it works, but was how much you put into growing, like, um, is it the cover crops, or uh, it was like 60% of what you grew was for improving the soil, right? And only 30% was calorie crop. I'll let you, I, I should. <laughs> Just you well, talk. yeah, yeah. So um, I guess, so the method has these eight fundamental principles that kind of guide guide the method. So these principles help us achieve the goals of being able to grow a complete diet and maintain soil fertility and conserve resources. And so it's actually the the eighth principle, the the last principle, but I think it in many ways kind of belongs first as uh, this idea of a whole interrelated farming system. So anytime you walk into any growing space, it's taking that mindset and that perspective that this is parts of seed and plant and soil, but really it's this dynamic living system that we're going to interact with. And so when we approach a garden and a farming technique and, and even our backyard garden, we need to think about how all the parts are connected to one another and how if you just try to isolate one particular step or principle, it will not it will not function properly. It's not it's not something to be isolated and pulled apart. It's meant to be Okay, cool. Seen as a whole unit. So do you wanna go through the eight steps then? We'll start at the top. Yeah, so the they well essentially the first principle is deep soil preparation or what we call double digging. So we're trying to prepare the soil very deeply so that we can grow a lot of plants in a small space, yet they still have well-developed soil structure and pore space and room to have their roots grow and receive nutrients. And so this goes along with um, 
the principle of close plant spacing, right? So this is how we achieve the ability to grow a lot of food in a in a small space. Nice. So we have the soil is deep, and we can plant the closest we can plant the plants very close together, and this also when the plants are that close together, they create this this living microclimate. Their their leaves just touch each other, and it creates this protection for the soil below, and this really healthy, cool environment under the leaves that really fosters a lot of healthy life and growth under there. Um, one of the principles is the use of compost, which is also very important. We can't plant all these plants very close together in a small area if we don't have fertility to provide for them. Yeah. So seeing how these all these things work together, so that's one of the principles. Um, and I was going to say, well, like, we, so when Mike first, because our garden's gradually, you know, gotten a little bigger every year and every year and every year. And so, and especially when we first started, one, we had limited water, but we also didn't have a fence. And so we just had like uh, two eight by 10 or two eight by uh, four beds, I think they were. And then Mike also built these little really deep beds that are like, they're like hip high, but they're only like three by four feet. And, and so I think having that, because they were hip high, that dirt that the plants could go down into made a huge difference in his success. That's really cool to hear. And I, yeah, and it's kind of amazing with that, that deep uh, fertility, all the water that can be held down there and the nutrients that can be held in that, in that healthy, porous soil. That's cool to hear that that was successful for you. And then he built these little plastic covers that were kind of like, like mini high tunnels, except for there's, you know, cause they were just, they just fit on that bed. So they were easy. They were light. You could pick them up. You could put them down. It was like just this plastic, you know, round lid, you know, he just took like one by fours with PVC pipe and, you know, shaped it over. So it would fit over the tomatoes and the eggplants and things. Um, when it got cool at the end of the season to let things grow a little longer, you know, it would only, we could, I think he figured we could get down to like 27 degrees and it would, it would keep them till there. Anything below 27 degrees, we pretty much lose anyway, but that was pretty nice. And especially it was a good solution for a small term because like where I live and I'm sure a lot of listeners have deer problems. And so before we got the big fence up, uh, that was a good solution for us to just make these little deep beds, um, and have either the plastic protector or he would put like just chicken wire, make like these little teepee type triangular chicken wire lids anyway we're talking about your guys's program but i was just you know saying that i think those deep beds are really nice i think yeah i know and it's it's cool to hear about and and it's also too it's like for you you had this exposure to potential deer because you didn't have the fence up so just by focusing focusing your energy on that smaller space you were able to cover things and protect them better and look after them and had probably a lot more productivity in that small area mm-hmm. than you would have had if you tried to go bigger um, and grow more food in a larger space. You probably mm-hmm. got equivalent or potentially higher yield. So it's just kind of cool to to realize how just a little TLC in a small space can go a long way. Yeah. And also it was really easy to weed. 
if there were any weeds that grew anywhere. I mean, he didn't have a lot of, he didn't have a lot of weeds because he would make sure there wasn't much in there. And then, because like our water shortage, we really just focused on watering the roots. But yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it was easy to grow like a couple of tomato plants and a few cucumber, you know, it was easily enough to grow enough of that stuff just for us to eat. Just the basics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and that's a great point about the water too. When you're working in a smaller space, you need less water. You have less ground to cover. You can be more focused and intentional about where you're putting your water. Mm-hmm. And exactly. it's a much more resource efficient um, way to use water is to grow in a small space. Yep. There's nothing like calling your water to teach you about how to be efficient. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. When you try to haul water to garden, you really make sure only stuff that's growing gets those precious drops, especially in the middle mm-hmm. of the summer when everything's hot and dry and thirsty and you're hauling gallons and gallons of water. But anyway, mm-hmm. okay, so uh, we're talking about compost and then what's next? So, so yeah, so then um, we really try to be intentional about companion planting and and pairing crops that will benefit each other. This is another way to maximize efficiency in a small growing area. So not only do we look at, well, actually, yeah, not only do we look at the beneficial companions that you read about traditionally in a companion planting book, but we're also thinking about roots and what are the different root structures of crops and, and how will they grow next to each other. And so this, how could we stack crops together to benefit each other? So, for example, this past growing season in 2015, I experimented with um, interplanting lettuces in with uh, my quinoa. Mm -hmm. And so by putting the lettuces in between the quinoa, it created this, this microclimate, this protection for the soil, while the quinoa got big enough to cover the ground with their own leaves. And then by the time the quinoa got big enough to cover the ground themselves, the lettuce was mature and I could harvest that out from underneath the the quinoa and got two crops out of this bed while they in time and space they they were good companions for one another and they supported the growth of one another. Nice. I like that. Uh so quinoa that's like um, a grain, right? That's kind of like a mm-hmm. mixture between couscous and rice is the way I kind of always describe it. If listeners don't know, and it's really healthy for you. I just actually had some yummy quinoa down at, there was like this farm financing workshop I got to go to. And somebody, it was like a potluck and somebody had brought a yummy quinoa salad. Uh, and so then how do you harvest quinoa? And and so it ha- it must have a longer growing it takes longer to grow than lettuce is that the deal yeah yes yeah, so definitely it's a longer growing time than than lettuce and there are numerous varieties um they're very hardy adaptable crop and so it can come in all different heights and it can take um different times to mature but um, I would say generally four months would be like an approximation of about how long it takes most quinoa varieties to mature in most climates. Okay. Um, and quinoa fits right into a, big, a very important part of our 
growing system because we grow a lot of grain as a part of our uh, farm. And it fits into one of our principles where we're trying to grow these crops that will help maintain soil fertility. So what that means for us is we want to grow crops with a lot of biomass so we have materials to build compost. And so grains are this great example of these crops that we can grow that have the potential to have very tall, long stalks that give us a lot of biomass for compost building, but they also provide us with with grain, with food to feed ourselves. So we grow approximately 60% of our entire growing area in these crops that can provide us with both food for ourselves and food for the soil. I love that. So uh, one thing we've like noticed, I think, is like, well, so we finally bought a chipper a couple of years ago because like corn stalks and sunflower stalks and some of those things are harder to compost. So do you, is quinoa like that? Or is it, I love the thought of growing things that are putting nitrogen into the soil and putting, putting healthy nutrients into the soil and something you can eat too. Cause most of the cover crops I've heard about, well, the lentils you could eat too, but like clover more and just some other buckwheats and things. I guess buckwheat you probably eat. I don't know. I'll be quiet. Go ahead. Talk some more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely, you can, you can eat buckwheat. It's a, it's harder to, harder to clean the seed by hand. You need a de-hulling mechanism because okay. the hull around the buckwheat is, is a very tight shell, but it's definitely breakable and definitely edible. Um, but yeah, so, so quinoa has a similar uh, very structural carbon stock. It is, has a lot of lignans in the, in the stock. So it is not quite as fibrous as a, a corn stover, but it's definitely a sturdy, sturdy piece of organic material. And for us in our compost system, we actually really like having that high structural carbon material in our piles. And so it can take a little bit longer to break down than, than oh. some other materials. But by that more structural carbon helps create a diversified amount of kinds of carbon in our compost pile. And when we have that diversity of carbon in our pile, we're feeding a really wide range and a high diversity of microorganisms in our compost pile. And then we're having this diversity of carbon that we're putting into our soils. And with all that diversity creates this resilient growing system that's much more capable and adaptable to whatever natural conditions might occur. So with climate change and all these other potential insecurities in our growing system, the more diversity we put into our system, the more resilient and adaptable it can be. Awesome. And that's uh, just yesterday I was seeing one of my Facebook groups. Somebody was like in a total panic because her high tunnel had the plastic had just shredded and the roof had blown off and she had all these seedlings. She's going to try to get in the ground in the next two weeks, but this big storm was moving in and she was just, it was really kind of, you know, she was just nervous and scared and like, Oh my goodness, all my hundreds of babies are going to die or thousands. I mean, she had a, you, you know, those high tunnels are pretty big and she had a lot of starts and she's, and so, you know, climate's a huge effector in your growing system. So anything you can do to help your, um, you know, soil health, which has been a big, uh, 
you know, theme on my show for sure. A lot of my guests have talked about soil health is, you know, the key to everything. And so I love the way that you're growing 60% of your space is being used to grow something for, and that's another thing is like people are always asking us and we've always struggled with, where do you get dirt to fill when you make those deep beds? You know, where do you get good topsoil? Where do you get, um, you know, enough compost? Like, so, uh, quinoa, a great one that people might be interested in, not realize. Now, can I grow quinoa in Montana? Do you know? I think we're probably too cold four months. I don't know if that would go or not. I no, I think you could. It's slightly, um, frost hardy. Um, I definitely think you could find a variety because there's some quinoas. We are always trying to grow the tallest varieties possible. Uh-huh. And generally with height comes more growing days. Uh-huh. But there's definitely shorter varieties that I think you could definitely find a variety of quinoa that's right for you. Okay. And so. listeners, I just hope people are like, I remember when we first talked about that, it just made my head spin to think about growing something that's going to be taller just for the biomass. Like, I think that's just such an interesting way to look at your seed packets and start thinking about that kind of variety. What can you grow that's going to be taller so you get the most biomass out of it? Yeah, and it's, it's kind of cool because um, a lot of, well, I guess this is not exactly cool, but a lot of modern grain varieties have been bred to be shorter because it's easier to harvest with machinery. So it actually takes a little bit of like time and creativity to go through and look at these older heirloom varieties and find these older, taller varieties. Um, and so it's kind of just fun that I'm like naturally encouraged to go and and not only look for plants that will provide me with more biomass, but also it's encouraging me to go out and look for these older, more heirloom varieties and, and be a part of preserving preserving them. Nice. Uh, I've been reading a whole bunch about seed vaults and seed varieties and different, I was just, there was like a new young adult book at my library called Seeds. I was just reading this morning and it's, you know, it's geared towards high school kids, but um, it was just talking about the, um, you know, the different heirloom and have pictures from heirloom conferences. And it was really cool to see uh, them talking about like, there's basically out of, I would have to get the book to see the numbers, but like, we eat from like less than 200 varieties out of like thousands and thousands of varieties that have been on the earth. And basically I think it was like some really small number, like 10 is what most of our food comes from. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to read about. Yeah. It's like such a, a small diversity these days in, in most modern agriculture. And so when, we're growing in this small area and we, in these backyard gardens, it, we have a lot of freedom and flexibility to, to experiment with these other varieties and, and the more varieties of every crop that we have, this, this diversity, you know, we'll have more options of crops to grow when the, the weather changes as things, you know, potentially change in our world. We have more diversity and, and in turn more resilient. So it's just, it's very exciting to me to experiment with these older varieties of crops. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. So then what's the next step? So we talked about double dug the raised beds, double, you know, making that soil nice and deep and then composting and intensive planting and companion planting. So then what's next? Yeah, so um yeah, so we were talking about 
growing quinoa and we grain crops in 60% of our growing area to really ensure we have enough material for our compost pile. And then um, because we want to grow a whole diet, we're, we're trying to focus on, and we want to grow this diet in the smallest area possible. We're really trying to focus on really calorie efficient crops. Um, so crops that will give us a lot of calories in very small areas. So for us, this is mainly potatoes, garlic, leeks, and really the book lists seven crops that we found to be very efficient for this. And, and so when we're really intentional about planting, planting 30% of our growing space in these very calorie efficient crops, we can ensure we're going to have enough food for ourselves along with the grain crops we get from our, the 60% of our growing area. And then the final 10% of our growing area, we're growing in your more classic vegetable crops. So that's um, your tomatoes and lettuce and kale. And so that's where we're going to get all of our micronutrients and, and really ensure that we have a holistically healthy diet. I think listeners are going to be fascinated by that. So only 10% of your garden is where you grow classic vegetable crops. And they're going to think, wow, I can do some things differently. And if I was only going to grow that 10%, you know, if you really just only want to grow lettuce and tomatoes, you know, that's going to be easier to do. But um, that these other things can really make such a difference for you to be able to grow your whole diet if you're interested in it. So, um, yeah, and a lot of these um, techniques and principles are still applicable if you're not trying to to grow a whole diet. It's just kind of amazing to learn about how how easy it can be to really grow more of your complete diet in such a small space. And, you know, this is a great way to maybe not make money, but this is an amazing way to, to save money. You know, the more food you can grow in your yard, um, the less you have to buy from the store. And you can kind of be assured that it's going to be potentially the healthiest quality out there. I mean, obviously it depends on your soil, how healthy the food is, but I really believe that the food that we grow with our love and intention is going to be the healthiest food for us. That's beautiful. I love that. The food that we grow with our love and intention is going to be the healthiest quality food for us. And that's so true. And just, you know, people talk a lot about how I know I do. I mean, it's very hard for me to buy organic food when I'm at the grocery store. And, you know, in Montana, we have a little bit of a shorter season maybe than in California. Although you're in, are you in Northern California or Southern California? In Northern California. So I'm about three hours north of San Francisco. So, so your climate's not like that super sunny, you know, super, I mean, it might be sunny all the time, but not like that super hot, like down by LA or south of San Francisco that you're going to get. So, um, anyway, I don't know what my point was, but just that, uh, that people can grow more food of their own food that they want to eat. Like you said, you know, you might not be growing to make money, but being able to grow your own food. Uh, just the more of it that you can grow, it's amazing. You know, a packet of seeds is pretty inexpensive. You know, building that soil is a little, you know, can the being able to build your own soil up is just huge to me. I think that people are going to realize, wow, I can I can make my soil healthier and I can grow some of that 
stuff they charged me a fortune for by putting um, these cover crops on, you know, part of my yard or something, right? Yeah, and you know, I, we like to use the terminology with those with the cover crops. We actually like to call them compost crops. We like oh, to like start that. these crops off with their life with that intention that you know they're going to help us build compost and they're going to help us build fertility. And another great thing about growing these grains is not only can they provide us the biomass to build our compost pile, and they provide us with food, but most of these grain crops have really deep, amazing root systems that can go really far down into your soil, especially if you deeply prepare it and build the soil up from below, right? Because these plant roots, they put out these exudates and that attracts all this micro life into their root zone. And then the micro life is breaking down parent material and providing nutrients to these crops and, and creating this like buzzing living city around the root system of microorganisms and with all that life in your soil that's building soil that's healthy soil and so that life around the root zone plus injecting well I guess you don't inject it but you lightly amend with your your homemade compost and that life and and potential humus added to your soil too I mean that's how we grow and build soil. And it really can be as simple as, as growing crops with a lot of biomass. I love that. And I thought you were going to say, besides, they're really pretty. <laughs> and they're really pretty. Quinoa is a gorgeous crop. It's super beautiful. And one that we grow a lot here in the summer also is amaranth, which is, yeah. it's often, there's a lot of just purely ornamental varieties which are still edible, but they're bred for their, their beauty and, and not necessarily for their flavor or nutrition. But, um, I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous crop. I bought some seeds from, uh, I bought, what did I buy? I bought clover cover crop and buckwheat cover crop and then some amaranth from Lisa Ziegler, who's been on my show a few times. And she's a flower farmer on the East Coast. Uh, but I bought those just to build our soil and to... Um, we bought the clover. A lot of the clover is for our bees because we want them to have uh, more stuff, you know, more blooms for them is part of why we got the clover. Um, but also, yeah, it's just neat to see, to be able to grow something that's going to put, you know, nutrition into your soil and build the soil at the same time. And uh, the, oh, the other thing I was thinking is that like, so this woman, Liz Carlisle came on and talked about the lentil underground growing where they're growing those crops on the east side of Montana without using irrigation. And the east side is notorious for being a much drier climate. And so to be able to grow some of those crops without needing as much water because they are managing to get by in Montana with just the rain that comes down is another plug, especially, you know, in California where you guys have a lot of droughts and um, difficult water. I was just watching that GMO OMG movie last night. And they, uh, the guys from the Rodale Organic Test Farm Trials were there talking about how the organic, um, when you have uh, conditions that are less than ideal, the organic will produce bigger yields. And so, and that's kind of been my driving force behind how I started my podcast to begin with was I read about the organic farm trials back in 2000. I've always been a big fan of organic gardening and 
no, I guess it's called Organic Life magazine. Anyway, little tangent there. Uh, okay, so we talked about what our calorie calorie crop. Did we talk about what the efficient calorie crops? You said potatoes. Uh, yeah, so there's seven crops that we found that are, like, really great at filling this niche of, like, giving us the calories we want in, the, in this really small space. So um, they are potatoes, leeks, garlic, sweet potatoes, parsnips, Jer- Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes, and um, a crop called salsify, which is just a funky older root crop some people call it uh, oyster plant and these seven crops we found to be very efficient at, at achieving our goal of calories in a small space okay and um so when you say calories just for people if they're wondering like we're not talking about like you know counting or are we talking about like counting your daily calories like you should get x amount of calories a day I mean, that is what it is, right? Yeah, so a a big part of this method um, that we practice um, is is diet designing, right? And so it's kind of the opposite of, like, dieting, calorie counting that you classically hear about because we want to make sure that we're going to grow enough calories. And so that's where we start, right? We start with we we know we need to run a farm. We need a certain amount of energy to, to work in the field. So... We're going to plan for us to have enough calories to have that energy. And then we start getting into the, the micro and macronutrients that are also necessary for, to be a healthy human and, and have the energy we need. But for us, um, it starts with calories. And so it's kind of a funny thing to think about in our world of abundance where we're often thinking about <laughs> eating less calories. But when you're really trying to grow all your own food, you want to make sure you have enough. That is interesting. I love that, though. It's a great way to look at it. Maybe people will um, start to kind of think of things that way. Okay. Should we go through some of the questions I normally ask? Well, all right. Was there anything else that I've forgotten? We went through the whole... Did we go through all eight methods? Well, eight um, well the, the last and, and final one I just wanted oh, to okay. mention was... Um, the, we really focus on using the open pollinated seeds, seeds that can be um, saved for growing in the final year versus a hybrid seed, which you can't save the seed. And in, in, or if you do save it, it won't grow true to type the following year. So that's a very important ethic of ours because of this attempt to create more resilient growing systems. Um, if we can save our seed, we can. We don't need to be reliant on seed companies or outside sources. And slowly over the years, if we're intentional about how we save that seed, we're breeding a variety that is adapted to thrive in our microclimate, like the small microclimate that is our garden or your garden. This seed is adapting to live there and to thrive there above any other place. And so that is just amazing that we can interact with the growing system in that way and, and partner with a plant to, to have it thrive in our garden. Um, so, and that's a, a big part of why Tadonifal Garden Seed Company started in the first place. 
to help people achieve that goal. So, um, so yeah, and so then it's really for us about how all these principles fit together in this holistic mindset that, that really makes the living difference. And, you know, it's a big part of why I really fell in love with this method of farming is that it happens on such a small scale. And I, you know, I mentioned that accessibility factor, which I think is really empowering to, for me and for, for anyone. Um, but also just the ability to work on in such a smaller space that, that gives you the opportunity to interact with the whole growing area every day. And when you have the, the time and the ability to interact with your whole growing space, first of all, you, can, you have the ability to make every plant the best plant it can be. And if every plant is producing as efficiently as it possibly can, you're going to have greater pro- productivity in this small space. And also, too, you know, when you have the time to interact in this way, you start to see how everything is connected and how and you really observe and experience these connections in the, and you get to interact with this life cycle that's occurring in the garden. And I really think that when you can reconnect with this, this natural system, you really start to see how the human's place in this natural cycle of life and in our, our role in this greater ecosystem that is the planet. And when we started experiencing on a heart level these connections, I really think it has this endless impact to create positive change in, in the whole world and the whole planet. So um, I really think it's powerful what we can do just in our backyard garden or small space garden. Um, so it's really why I love this method and and why I feel so lucky to have found myself um, at, as the farm manager out here in Willett. So, yeah. Well, I think we're lucky that you're out there educating people and working hard in your garden and teaching us and just, that was just beautiful. So eloquent and just, I think listeners are going to be super inspired that growing in their own backyard is going to make a big difference in the world. And uh, you know, one of the things I didn't really realize until I started this podcast was how seeds, people who save seeds are really the biggest people changing the world today. And Bill McDormand came on on episode 100, I think, and really talked about, you know, not worrying about Monsanto, not worrying about what's going on with the big seed companies and just the more seeds that we save and, and how they get active. I had no idea that you know, if you saved a seed, it was going to get more acclimated to our um, environment and that it would grow better the next year and grow better the next year. And that each year, like I would just always go buy new seeds every year and never even thought about it. So, and he has a great book on seed saving. I think it's like a PDF you can download for free from his website um, on how simple it can be and just really encourages people to save their seeds. So I think uh, you've just really encouraged people to I think it's just really inspired people that they can do this and that they can grow because it's, it's true. It's amazing how much produce you actually get from one plant, how much of a difference just one little plant can do. And nobody's going to grow just one plant or very, it's not likely you're going to grow just one thing. You're going to have a small little bed. I mean, you could just put a tomato in a pot and have a couple of tomatoes if you're, you know, super busy and live in an apartment or something. But I think people are going to be really inspired that if they do have a backyard that they could um, you know, be more productive, be more successful, 
uh, by following these steps and maybe getting that book and just um, that there's ways out there to do this uh, easily. And, and, and I like a lot of your things are going to make it um, not very expensive to get involved in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a big ethic of ours is, is trying to do things with the minimal amount of resources. Um, so we do, I mean, we definitely do have some, some small inputs. I mean, we use rubber hoses and they break sometimes and we replace them, but we're really trying to keep um, our resources down. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to tell us about... Do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year or last year? Um, well, I feel like I already talked about quinoa so much, but it was definitely our star performer in the garden last year. Quinoa got, you know, like seven feet tall, just really full and um, colorful. We grew this variety called Kaslala. That's kind of this multicolored, and it kind of starts out with these um, kind of sherbet colors or like maybe a pastels and a whole rainbow. And then throughout the season, as it matures, they kind of darken. And it's these deep pinks and these deep greens and deep, deep oranges. And it's just absolutely just one of the most gorgeous crops I've ever seen. Um, and it was very successful for us last year. And nice. it's... Definitely um, a very drought-tolerant crop as well. And as I was mentioning, we interplanted with the lettuce, so we got a whole second crop out of all of our quinoa beds. And, um, yeah, I just can't speak highly enough of quinoa. And very nutritious for you. It's got kind of a, a nutty flavor to the grain that's, like, really delicious. Yeah, I totally agree. You know what? Let's spell quinoa for our listeners because it is a podcast, and you know. Yeah, so it's Q U I N O A. Perfect. Okay, so how about something you're excited to do different next year? What are you excited or this year coming up? Well, this year. I think um, what I'm most excited about is that we're going to try to grow um, a lot of fiber crops in the garden. One of my coworkers um, is very passionate about um, fiber arts, and so she's trying to grow um, flax and cotton, and she wants to uh, harvest the, the material from them and make fiber, and then ideally we always joke about growing enough to to make our t-shirts and, and grow our own food and grow our own clothes. Um, so I think that's going to be a really exciting project this year. And she, um, she grew a small plot of flax last year and it did really well. So we have a lot of faith and excitement that it's going to be super successful again this year. Nice. How about some hemp or some hemp in that mix? Maybe one day they just, you, I don't totally understand what the regulations are for growing hemp these oh, days, I but I Nobody think you does. need a permit and yeah. So, but definitely hemp and the DEA would be a great option. And grab your hemp at the very end of the year and say, Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. we, we didn't know whatever their <laughs> deal is, um, but, um, but it is a nice fiber. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
do you want to tell us about something that didn't work so well or didn't come out the way you thought it was gonna last year? Um, we, our cabbage didn't head last year. And so I think it was my suspicion. It was very old seed that I found in a weird little back corner of my tool shed. Um, so I think that it was just potential, um, old seed, but, uh, it didn't head. Um, so I just decided to make sauerkraut out of the leaves that did grow. And it was by far the most delicious sauerkraut I've ever eaten. I just thought the texture of the, the leaves was this like beautiful in between, between the, the crispness of the head, but it wasn't like flimsy. Like if you were to ferment kale or something, it was this really delicious in between. So it was like a beautiful, happy mistake that happened. I like um, that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. What's your least favorite activity to do in the garden? Is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and go do? You know, honestly, I thought I thought about this question when I read your list, and I really, I honestly love it all. I mean, as I as I have um, worked on farms for longer and longer, I mean, there were things I used to hate doing that I just have done enough times now that I've like learned to love. And, uh, and yeah, I really, once, once it's like overcoming the, the mental barrier that made me dislike a task mm-hmm. and then being, becoming really good at it and, and seeing that pattern over and over again, it's kind of like, okay, well maybe it's not my first choice thing to do. But I know if I do it, it's going to be rewarding later. And that this step connects me to to this other step that I love doing in the garden. And so it's just been through years of of, of repetition that have really taught me to appreciate all all garden tasks. Nice. I love the way you put that. Uh, I think that's really going to inspire people. Uh, it's inspiring me. It's making me think I should get out there right now. <laughs> What's your favorite activity to do in the garden? I love building compost. I think that it it can be as simple as just throwing things in a pile, but it can be this really like beautiful, interactive and, and intentional process where you're like creating a recipe of materials and you're you're building them up together and you're you know, monitoring the moisture and the the amount of air space and, and the temperature and it can just be kind of like this this it, it, part of it could be like a magic potion or it's like this exciting science experiment and it's like us interacting with this natural decomposition process and like getting to participate in that is just so cool to me. Um and, you know, to me, compost is this, like, this key, this, this vital part of, like, creating a sustainable system, right? It's like the compost is the recycling aspect. So this is what allows us to cycle our fertility and cycle our nutrients through the system. So, so we're hopefully working towards, like, a, a closed loop. Like, we're closing this loop of fertility by recycling. And, like, this is this, is this key to sustainability and this key to, to soil health and soil fertility. Um, so for me, I just absolutely love it. I think it is just so cool to, to participate in that 
natural process. That's like, you know, the natural decomposition on the forest floor. It's just like such a key to life on this planet. I just, I feel so lucky to, to get to participate. I gotta say, I agree. I love to make compost too. And listeners, you know, from listening to me, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Cause it's really, it's really hard to screw up your compost. I think like you can, if you forget to turn it one day, it's, you know, it's always forgiving. It's really easy to keep that bucket in your kitchen. I, I mean, we've, I've always had a bucket in my kitchen ever since I can remember. Like my mom always had compost on the counter, you know, it gets you outside to go throw it away. It's just like, and I just love the way, you know, like I was talking the other day, we, our compost pile usually turns to compost within two weeks. Like if you're, if we're in the middle of summer and we're adding fresh grass cuppings, Mike and I can usually make that pile, you know, ready to put on the garden within two weeks. And so, but my brother on the flip side, he just like throws everything out there, doesn't deal with it very much, lets it sit through the winter. And he just has one pile of compost in the spring that's kind of how he does it so here's two different people two different areas just mike and i go through a lot more compost we have a bigger garden so we try to produce more but uh i just think listeners are gonna love your i i know it is exciting it's like a fun science experiment and listeners also know i don't usually like to get dirty it's not a dirty project it's easy to turn it when no matter what you're wearing and just at least for me that's the way i think uh what's your best gardening advice you ever received um, I think I really love the advice, you know, John Devins, you, you, when I first got here, he was like, do one bed and do it well, you know, just, nice. just focus on this one bed and do a good job here. And that will teach you how to grow all the crops well. And, you know, just that, that advice to just like start small is was very empowering as a much easier for me to succeed and then um, feel empowered to, to grow in a, you know, a larger space. Perfect. I love the way you talk about it. it made you feel empowered and it was easier to grow in a smaller space and then to succeed and just keep growing. And a lot of people have said that too. Perfect. How about, what's your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Well, I really love using my hands and feet as tools whenever possible or picking up a rock and and using that. I really, I love just like um, being creative with whatever is around me. But um, nice. one tool I really love is, um, uh, it's a Japanese sickle. Mm-hmm. It's just like a serrated edge on a, on a very small hand sickle. And it's just really great for harvesting um by hand so like when we have our grain crops that go to maturity it's super fast super efficient for harvesting um sets of grain and definitely uh really love that tool we keep it in a very special place in our tool shed so it it doesn't get rusty or or messed up nice one of my very first jobs when i when I first moved to Montana, but then I went home for the summer, I worked for the, I want to say it was like the governor of Long Island, his like gardening crew or whatever. Like they lived in this mansion and there were like four of us, but I really learned about how to take care of your tools there. Like we would oil the metal part and then we would even like wipe down the wood each night. And, and I even want to say we put some kind of oil on that too, but 
just really taking care of your tools is a nice thing to do. So where do you get one of those Japanese sickles? Um, Bountiful Gardens sells them, and I'm sure you could get them other places too, but that is where we got ours from. Cool. In the back of their um, seed catalog, they have some um, they have tools listed as well. Okay, and not to embarrass you, but didn't you tell me that you and two of the – is two of the intern or the other woman that you work with are on the cover of this year's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, me and the two women I work with um, at the Devon Center Farm, um, that's the three of us on the cover of the Bountiful Gardens catalog. Okay, and you yep. know what? You should spell Jevons for listeners in case they haven't, they don't know how to spell that, just because it is a problem. Oh, yeah. So um, it's, a, well, it's John Jevons, and it's J E A V O N S, and he's the uh, the author of the book How to Grow More Vegetables, which is which is this really great book that talks all about what I'm talking about in a really concise and simple way, and um, it's, the farm is named after um, John, who started started this farm and this nonprofit. Um, so, yeah, so it's the Jevon Center for Research and Education. Nice. Do, do you want to tell us how you got there? Or that was a long story you didn't want to get into? I forgot. Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of, you know, um, after I was farming in Hawaii and, you know, I really knew that whole story and how I fell in love and I was so passionate about farming and I knew it was what I wanted to do. But I also realized that it was a very settling profession. Like, to really be good at it, to me, it felt like you needed to, to find a piece of land and, and settle there and get to know the climate and know the soil. And at that time in my life, I was, I was 22, 23, and I wasn't quite ready to be that settled. So I, like, <laughs> went on power adventuring. And so I went out and I, I did some more trail work and I did a bike tour down the coast of California and I went rock climbing and mountaineering. I went and lived in Costa Rica for a little while and I just like power adventured. And then, you know, about beginning of 2013, I was finally like, okay, I'm ready to find my farm. I'm ready to settle down. And when I started looking online, I found the Devon Center and I, you know, it, the biointensive method obviously was still such a, had created such a strong impact on me in my early exposure to farming. So when I found out, whoa, there's a nonprofit and they have farms and, and I can work there. And so I sent in my resume and application and, and uh, started as a three-year apprentice back in 2013. And then had a lot of fortunate um, events occur that has led me to be the mini farm manager, um, which I started that position last year in 2015. And yeah, so that's kind of the, <laughs> the long and the short of how I ended up here. I'm so glad I asked you that. I bet listeners are going to be like, cool, because they probably thought, man, this girl's just so focused and she knew exactly what she wanted to do right away. And she just went here, there, and boom, she got this job. And I love the part about the adventure, power adventuring. 
How fun. And then, so see, listeners, there's time to do it all. You can go to college, you can be a power adventurer, and you can still get your dream job. Uh, okay, so what's your favorite recipe? Because we are like well over an hour. I'm glad we're having fun. Oh, yeah, sorry. I've totally not changed <laughs> no, the time yet. it's my fault, too. No, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, well, yeah, yeah, I guess cut out what you need to. Um, but, yeah, so favorite recipe. So we are all, it's not a formal competition, but definitely um, a, a quiet competition to see who can recycle the leftovers in the most exciting way. Um, oh, I love it. So we all take turns cooking throughout the week, um, me and the the other farmers and interns on the site. And so, so far, the best one we've come up with is something we call soup bread, which, so you have your original, your original meal, maybe it's quinoa and beans, and so you eat that the first day, and then the next day you, the next cook turns it into soup, and then you eat it as a soup, and then the next day, you cook it into like a quick bread and you make, it's kind of like a quick bread, like a zucchini bread, except mm-hmm. it's the savory version. And so then you cook it into a bread. It's like the ultimate recycle. And then the, the most amazing is when you can make the bread with some of the soup and then you take the other part of the soup and you can make a sauce out of it and serve the sauce with the bread. And mm. that is actually insanely delicious. And, I think the key to enjoying a simple homegrown diet is just learning how to transform foods in in exciting ways. That was awesome. I love that. Cool. Okay. What's your favorite internet resource? Um, I'm not much of a an internet person for my farming information, um, but I always am referencing how to grow more vegetables. There's these great charts and really helpful information in the back of the book. But another book I really love is the sustainable, it's called Sustainable Market Farming by Pam Dolling. And she's just got a lot of cool crop detail information that I find really interesting and and helpful for me on a regular basis. Cool. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to go to the final question. Jess, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing the planet in regards to the environment locally, globally, or on a national scale? So there's this statistic that I find amazing, and it's in Naomi Klein references it in her um, newest book, this that in 1943 during the um during the war 40 it's like over 40 percent of the produce grown in the country was grown in victory gardens in small gardens around the country and so that's almost half the produce in the united states grown in people's backyard gardens and to me that's just like amazing it's like there's a precedent for this like it's been done before and we can do it again and and if everybody could just supplement a little bit of their diet in their backyard and take the pressure off this large-scale on you know fragile food system like it could have this amazing difference not only in food security but also in health and 
and better nutrition and then just better connection to the natural world by interacting with a living system. It's just this like amazing opportunity for, for humans to get back in, in touch. And, and anyway, I just love that statistic. I think it's so cool that it's happened before. We can do it again. And um, I think that's how we can make the biggest difference. Perfect. I love that. Um, yeah. And the, I love No Yummy Klein's new book. It's the, um, oh, what's it called? Do you remember what it's called? Uh, it's something like the climate, something, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, Naomi Klein's book is called This Changes Everything. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into that dirt and start their own garden? Not that you haven't given us 20,000 reasons. Of people <laughs> being like, Oh my God, this girl has the secret. I can grow my food in a small space in my little backyard. Well, something we love to, to say here on the farm is grow food, grow soil, grow people. And, you know, we, and it might be better said in the opposite way, but, uh, but we really, you know, we grow food, we think we want to grow food first, but then we really need, realize we need to grow soil to grow the food. And then we realize we need people to help us grow the soil to grow the food. And so, you know, I really think it's all about the people and and nurturing people, nourishing people, and, and building stronger, more resilient communities. Oh, that was beautiful. Uh, and what a great way to say that grow people to grow the soil, to grow the food. Uh, perfect. And I think, you know, you're just another one of those rock star millennials that are out there changing the world, doing what you can do to, uh, make our planet a better place for your children and for the people that are living here now. Yeah. Okay. So tell our, tell listeners, how do they find your website and all that kind of fun stuff? Well, we have, we actually have two websites. Um, we have um, an interactive educational website, and it's biointensive.net. And then we have, um, which has a link to our other website also, but um, we have a website, growbiointensive.org, which has all of our information about our tours. We host multiple tours throughout the year. We host three-day workshops. We have um, an eight-month internship program. We have all these opportunities to, to come out and see us and learn more about the method. So you can check us out online. Um, and then we also have a Facebook page. Um, it's called Ecology Action. Um, yeah, so that's how you can, you can find us on the web. And, yeah, go to your local bookstore and look for How to Grow More Vegetables by John Jevons and yeah, or you can find our information in the back of the Bountiful Gardens um, catalog as well. Okay. Also, aren't there, like, videos that people can, like, there's, like, an online course somehow or some kind of videos? I'm sorry. I yeah, no, absolutely. If you, if you go to the biointensive.net website, it has links to all kinds of instructional, educational videos. You know, we really, we want to grow people. We want to get the information out there. And, you know, we're not keeping any secrets up here on the Hill. We want to, we want to share them with the world. Oh, I love it. Just thank you so much for sharing with us today and just bringing your passion, your just knowledge, your love of not just 
growing food, but, you know, changing our world and one garden at a time, but you're doing a lot more than that and sharing and educating us today and just happy Earth Day because it'll probably be about Earth Day when this airs or it might even be after Earth Day. I don't know. We're getting close. It's like a, today's yeah. like 12, 10 days yeah. away. So. Oh, well, I just want to thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me twice. And just, uh, you know, thank you for what you're doing. This is really a, an amazing, wonderful, important resource to connect farmers. And I'm so grateful that they're, you're out there doing what you're doing. And, and yeah, you're, you're helping us make the world a better place. Well, thanks. Well, come join the Facebook group and more people are joining every day and you'll meet some other listeners probably right in your area because California is definitely my biggest listenership is there. So maybe you'll meet some other people closer to you and, and just listeners will, I don't know. You guys, it's just fun. So come find us on Facebook. Thank you again. Cool. Thank you. Why did we create the Organic Oasis Guidebook? And why are we creating the Organic Oasis Masterclass with the amazing Patty Armbruster? When you get membership to her fan club and a weekly Q&A, not a weekly, a monthly Q&A with her. So it's because we want to help you live in the most earth-friendly, healthiest environment you can. So it's good for you. It's good for Mother Earth. Whether you grow vegetables or not, we will help you. You know, gardening can be a lot of work, but it can also, you can live in a beautiful landscape and that will help your neighborhood or local farmer or gardener, you know, their farm produce more food because you're inviting bees into your neighborhood with a pollinator border that's so pretty and you can pick bouquets of flowers or you can just enjoy them and just it's a beautiful place by your home whether you want to grow food or vegetables that's why we call it the organic oasis and we've been build, working on building our organic oasis for well mike and i've been married 27 years so we have been working on it very 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 slowly so we know how it goes and we've struggled with water we've and then i've interviewed over 300 people on the organic gardener podcast so I just know that um, I have gone from brown thumb to green thumb. So, you know, whatever your idea of an organic oasis is, whether you want a bee sanctuary or um, an earth-friendly landscape or you want to grow more vegetables, um, I've got the experts, Mike and Patty and all the guests that I've talked to to help you succeed and be able to eat healthy food and feed your kids healthy food and you know, um, just have access, you know, uh, fruits are some of the coolest things to grow. A raspberry patch keeps producing. You can get luscious blueberries and those are the kind of things that maybe need a little watering, a little bit. They're very low maintenance. One of my amazing guests was Tara who wrote the book on growing fruit trees in the Pacific Northwest. And she talks about it because she wanted low maintenance because she was gardening at her mom's house. So all sorts of great tips for you on how to create your own earth-friendly organic oasis. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.